Stamps.com. Postage on demand. Print your own postage and shipping labels in seconds. Click instantly buy and calculate exact postage. Print, print postage, label, envelope, or plain paper. Mail a fix of postage. Mail anywhere in the world. Give Stamps.com a try. Get $5 of free postage. Check offer details on Stamps.com. Corporate postage solutions have more than one. Have more than two locations. The Stamps.com Enterprise is a postage solution for you. Offer shipping solutions. Process and print for shipping labels. Fast and enjoy shipping discounts and more. Stamps.com versus postage news. The choice is clear. Stamps.com offers more features at a fraction of the cost. Approved license vendor of USPS. Save big with discounted rates from USPS and UPS. Stamps.com is an independent vendor of the USPS and UPS. Here's how it works. Open Stamps.com account. Simplify. Simply click to click the get started button to sign up for a stamp. <coughs> Stamps.com and get access to all the services at the post office right from your computer 24-7. You can get discounts you can't get at the post office. Try it out with $5 free postage. Stamps.com will give you four weeks to see if you to see if they are right for you. Stamps.com is so confident you'll like them. They'll also throw in $5 free postage to use during the four weeks. Don't pay unless you stay. Cancel your account online or call 1-855-608-2670 to cancel within the four week trial period and pay no service fee. The monthly fee is just $17.99 plus optical taxes, if any, including the first month. Your service will continue uninterrupted as long as you do not cancel. Your 24-7 post office. Send invoices, letters, packages, print official USPS postage, domestic or international. No more guesswork. How much postage? What, what mail costs? Stamps.com will figure it out for you. Eliminate trips to the post office. Anything you can do at the post office, you can get. You can do right from your desk 24-7. Do more than a postage meter for less. Avoid hidden fees and equipment insurance. And there's no extra hardware to buy or lease. Never pay full price for stamps again. Great postage is good. You, do, you can't even get at the post office. Customer support. Always ready to help. Available by phone, email, or chat. Monday for Friday 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. PST. Not just for small office mailing, multi-location solutions, shipping solutions, warehouse solutions. Good morning. Today's true crime story is a Columbine High School Massacre, Part 1. Columbine High School massacre was a school shooting and attempted bombing that occurred on April 20, 1999 at Columbine High School in Columbine, Colorado. The perpetrators, 12th grade senior students Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, murdered 12 students and one teacher. Ten students were killed in the school library where the pair subsequently committed suicide. 21 additional people were injured by gunshots and gunfire was also exchanged with the police. Another three people were injured trying to escape the school. At the time it was the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history. The crime was has inspired several copycats and Columbine has become a byword for mass shootings. In addition to the shootings, the attack involved several homemade bombs. 
get two of these replaced. <coughs> two of these replaced in the cafeteria probably. <coughs> Alpha enough to kill or seriously injure all people within the area. Although they failed to detonate. Their cars in the parking lot were made into bombs. Their cars in the parking lot were made into bombs which also failed to detonate. And at another location away from the school, two bombs were set up as diversions, only one of which particularly partially detonated. The motive remains unclear, but Harrison clearly planned the massacre for around a year <coughs> and hoped the massacre would cause the most deaths in U.S. history, which then meant <coughs> exceeding the death toll of the Oklahoma City bombing. USA Today referred to the column as was planned as planned as a grand, if badly implemented, terrorist bombing. The police were slow to enter the school and were heavily criticized for not intervening during the shooting. The incident was resulted in the introduction for the immediate action of the rapid deployment tactic, which is used <coughs> in active shooter situations. Combat also resulted in an increased Emphasis on school security with zero tolerance policies, debates, and moral panic were sparked over guns and gun control laws, high school cliques, subcultures, e.g., goths, outcasts, and bullying. Also, teenage use of pharmaceutical antidepressants, the internet, and violence in video games and movies. Many impromptu memorials were created after the massacre, including victims Rachel Scott's car and John Tomlin's truck. Fifteen crosses for the victims and shooters were also erected on top of a hill in Clement Park. The crosses for Harris and Cooper were later removed as it caused controversy. A permanent memorial began planning in June 1999. The Columbine Memorial opened up to the public on September 21, 2007. Background AOL website In 1996, 15-year-old Eric Harris created a private website on American Online AOL. It was issued to host levels WADs Harris created for use in the first pension in the first person shooter video games Doom and Doom 2, as well as Quake. On the site, Harris began a blog which included jokes of his thoughts on his family, friends, and school. It also detailed Harris sticking out of the house to cause mischief and vandalism, such as lighting fireworks with his friend Dylan Clebold and others. Harris worked at a fireworks stand and had received civil fireworks as a result. The mascot of Combine High School, CHS, is a Rebels and they called the Sneaking Out Rebel Missions. Harris and Cleveland adopted the names of Reb and Vodka, respectfully. Beginning in early 1997, the blog posts began to show the first signs of Harris's anger against society. By the end of the year, the site contained instructions on how to make explosive Harris wrote. The first true pipe bombs created entirely from scratch by the rebels are Reb and Vodka. Now our only problem is to find a place that will be ground zero. Harris's site attracted few visitors and caused no concern until March 1998. Harris ended a blog posted detailing murders specifically with all I want to do is kill and injure as many of you as I can, especially a few people like Brooks Brown, a classmate of his. Brown claims that people gave him his web, given the web address in an effort to warn him of Harris's threats about violence against him. Others suggest that it was, in fact, discovered by Brooks' brother Aaron Brown.
At the Browns, parents viewed the site. They contacted the Jefferson County Chuffco Sheriff's Office. So when the investigator Michael Guerra assessed the website, he discovered numerous violent threats directed against students and teachers of CHS. Guerra wrote a draft affidavit requesting a search warrant of the Harris household. The affidavit also mentioned the discovery of an exploded pipe bomb in February 1998 and the suspicion of Harris being involved in the unsolved case. The affidavit was never submitted to a judge and therefore went ignored. Van break-in. On January 30, 1998, Harris and Cleveland were arrested for breaking into a van parked near Littleton and, and stealing tools and computer equipment. They would subsequently attend a joint court hearing where they pled guilty to the felony theft. The judge sentenced them to juvenile diversion program and as a result, both the illegals attended mandatory classes such as anger management and talked with diversion officers. They both eventually released from diversion several weeks early because of positive actions in the program and put on probation. Nearly a year before the massacre, Cleveland wrote a message in Harris's 1998 yearbook, Killing enemies, blowing up stuff, killing cops, my wrath for January's incident will be godlike. Not to mention our revenge in the commons. The commons was another term for the school cafeteria. Journals. Harris and Cleveland kept journals which were released to the public in 2006. In the journals, the pair would eventually document their arsenal and plan of attack. Shortly after the court hearing for the van break-in, Harris reverted his website back to just post posting user-created levels of doom. He began to write his thoughts down in a journal instead. It shows a long period of methodical preparation for the massacre. Also, Harris also typed out on his computer a plan for the attack, which includes possibly escaping to a foreign country afterwards on hij or hijacking an aircraft at Denver International Airport and crashing it into New York City. New York City. Cleveland had already been writing down his thoughts since March 1997. As early as November 1997, Cleveland mentioned going on a killing spree. Schoolwork. Harrison Cleveland also used their schoolwork to foreshadow the massacre. They both displayed themes of violence in their creative writing projects. Harris wrote a paper on school shootings and a poem from the perspective of Ebola. Cleveland wrote a short story about a man killing students, which worried his teacher so much that she alerted his parents. Both in acting research, war, and murder for one project, Harris wrote a paper on the Nazis and Cooper wrote a paper on Charles Manson. In a psychology class, Harris wrote he dreamed of going on a shooting spree with Cleveland. Harris's journals also Harris's journals discussed several experiments of bomb detonations. Tapes. Harris and Cleveland were both enrolled in video production classes and kept five video tapes that were recorded with school video equipment. Only two of these hitmen for fire and rampage range and a part of third had been released. The remaining three tapes detailed the player plans and reasons for the massacre, including the way they hid their weapons and deceived their parents. Most of these were shot in the Harris family basement and are known as the basement tapes. Thirty minutes before the attack, they made a final video saying goodbye and apologizing to their friends and family. Families. In September 1999, before anybody else had seen them, Times Magazine published an article on these tapes. The victim's family members threatened to sue Jeff Coe. As a result, select victim families and journalists were allowed to see them, and they were then kept from the public indefinitely for fear of expiring future massacres. 
The tapes have since allegedly been destroyed. There are only there are only transcripts of some of the dialogue and a short clip recorded surreptitiously by a victim's father. The pair claimed they were going to make these copies of the tapes to send to news stations, but never did so. When an economic class had had Harris take an ad for a business, he and Cuba made a video called Hitman for Hire on December 8, 1998, which was released in the school who wore black, black trench coats extorting money for protecting reps from bullets. They were apparently not a part of the trench coat mafia, but were friends of, with some of its members. They wore black trench coats on the day of the massacre and the, and the video seen a kind of dress rehearsal, showing them walking the halls of the school and shooting bullies outside with fake guns. On October 21st, 2003, a video was released showing the pair doing target practice on March 6, 1999 in a nearby foothills known as Rampage Rampart Range with the, weapon, with the weapons they would use in the massacre. In the early morning hours before the massacre, Harris left a micro-cassette labeled Nixon on the kitchen table, on it, Harris said it is less than nine hours now. Uh, placing the recording at sometime around 2:30 a.m., he went on to say, "People will die because of me, and it will be a day that will be remembered forever." Weaponry guns. In the months prior to attacks, Harris and Clipper acquired two 9mm firearms and two 12-gauge shotguns. Harris had a high point 995 carbine, a 13-10 round. 13 10-round magazines by the Savage Springfield 67H pump-action shotgun. We both use a 9x19mm Intratec Tech 9 semi-automatic handgun with 152, 132, and 128-round magazines, and a Stevens 311D double-barrel shotgun. Air shotgun was sawed off at to around 26 inches, 0.66 meters, and Cleaver shortened his shotgun's length to 23 inches. 0.58 meters, a felony under the National Firearms Act. Tanner Gunshow. On November 22, 1990, their friend Robin Anderson purchased a carbine rifle and the two shotguns for the pair at the Tanner Gunshow as they were too young to legally purchase the guns themselves. After the attack, she told investigators that she had believed the pair wanted the items for target shooting and that she had no prior knowledge of their plans. Anderson was not charged. Three days before the shooting, people attended the high school prom with Anderson. Mark Means and Phil Duran. Harris and Clipper both held part-time jobs at the local blackjack pizza through Phil Duran, the co-worker. Clipper bought a Tech 9 handgun <coughs> from Mark Means for $500 at another gun show on January 23rd. Means, Means. Maine's, Maine's girlfriend and Duran were, are all, were all in the Rampart Range video. After the massacre, Maine's and Duran were both prosecuted. Each was charged with supplying a handgun to a minor in possession of a shot-off, sawed-off shotgun. Maine's and Duran were sentenced to a total of six years and four and a half years of prison, respectfully. Explosives. In addition to the fires, the complex and highly planned attack involved several improvised explosive devices using instructions obtained via the internet and the anarchist cookbook. Harris and Cleveland constructed a total of 99 bombs. 
These included pipe bombs, carbon dioxide cartridges filled with gunfire called crickets, volatile cocktails, propane tanks converted to bombs, fire bombs, and diversionary bombs. For ignition, they used kitchen matches and model rocket igniters, as well as timing devices built for and batteries for the propane car and diversion bombs. During the massacre, they carried lighters as well as mass strikers taped to their forums to light the pipe bombs and crickets. They had 45 crickets, 8 of which detonated and 9 molotov cocktails, 2 of which functioned. Harris also attempted to make napalm and a vision of kind of backpack and flamethrower. They both attempted to get another friend and co-worker, Chris Morris, who was part of the Trenchcoat Mafia, to keep the napalm at his house, but refused. Harris also tried to recruit him to be a third shooter, but would play it off as a joke when rebuked. Pipe bombs. Harris's website contained instructions making pipe bombs, including use of shrapnel. Harris's parents once discovered one of his pipe bombs. Harris's journal logged the creation of 25 pipe bombs, a total of 35 were used during the massacre, 14 of which detonated. Cleveland scared his co-workers by once bringing a pipe bomb into work. They would give names to their pipe bombs. After the massacre, two pipe bombs had been left in Cleveland's bedroom, one named Vengeance and another Atlanta. <coughs> Presumably at the Olympic Park bombing. Propane bombs. They had eight propane tanks used for bombs. The weekend before the shootings, Harris and Cleveland bought two propane tanks and other supplies from a hardware store for a few hundred dollars. They bought <coughs> six propane tanks on the morning of the tank. Harris was caught on a Texas gas station to carry security camera at 9.12 a.m. buying a blue rhino propane tank. Each cafeteria bomb was made from one 20-pound, 9.1-kilograms tank with a gallon gas can attached. Car bombs. Each car bomb was made from pipe bombs and two 20-pound propane tanks, which gas cans and bottles set throughout. Eight pipe bombs were placed in Cleveland's car and one in Harris's. Knives. Harris and Clay each carried two knives, which were never used during the massacre. Harris had one in a sheath taped to his ankles. Cleveland had one that was a cobra knife, a curved blade, and several spikes on his handle. The Massacre. According to the journals and videotapes, it was believed by investigators that the pair intended to detonate their propane bombs in the cafeteria at the busiest lunch hour, killing hundreds of students. After this, they would shoot survivors. They would also be able to stab or toss bombs. Eventually, bombs set in their cars in the parking lot would also detonate, killing more students, as well as possibly any police officer, paramedics, firemen, or reporters who had come to the school. However, this failed to occur since the bombs in the cafeteria and cars failed to detonate. Several officers, several official sources claimed they planned to shoot the fleeing survivors from the parking lot but moved to the staircase on the hill at the west side of the school when the bombs failed. Other sources claimed that the top of the staircase where the massacre began was their preferred spot to wait for the bombs to go off all along. A total of 188 rounds of ammunition were fired by the perpetrators during the massacre, firing nearly twice as much as Cleveland. Harris fired his carbine rifle a total of 96 times and discharged his shotgun 
25 times, quiver fire the Tech 9 handgun, 55 times, and 12 rounds from a still barrel shotgun. Law enforcement also had fought, fired 140 rounds during the exchange of gunfire with the shooters. Planning the bombs. On Tuesday morning, April 20th, 1999, Harrison could place two duffel bags in the cafeteria. Each bag contained propane bombs, which were set to detonate at 11.17 a.m. during the A lunch shift. No witnesses recall seeing the duffel bags being added to the 400 or so backpacks that were already in the cafeteria. The security staff at CHS did not observe the bags being placed in the cafeteria. A custodian was replacing the school security videotape at around 11.14 a.m., which might have been the time that the duffel bags were dropped off. Some internet citizens claim that the bomb replacement can be seen on the surveillance video at around 10.58 a.m. shortly after the massacre. Police also investigated whether the bombs were placed during the after-prom party held the prior weekend. Jefferson County Sheriff's Deputy Neil Gardner was sent to the high school as a full-time resource school. Full-time school resource officer Gardner usually ate lunch with students in the cafeteria, but on April 20th, he was eating lunch in his patrol car at the northwest corner of the campus, watching students in the smoker's pit in Clement Park, a meadow adjacent to the school. Two backpacks filled with pipe bombs, hard aerosol canisters, and small propane bombs were also placed in a field about 3 miles 4.8 kilometers south of CHS and 2 miles 3.2 kilometers south the fire station set to detonate at 11.14 a.m. The bombs were intended as a diversion to draw firefighters and emergency personnel away from the school. Only the pipe bombs and one of the aerosol cans detonated, causing a small fire which was quickly extinguished by the fire department. It went off when removed. Bomb technician admitted the examined the bombs and relayed to police at the school and at the school, the possibility of devices with motion activators. Around 11:10 a.m., Harris and Clearwater used separately arrived separately at CHS. Harris parked his vehicle in the junior student parking lot, and Clear parked in the adjoining senior student parking lot. The school cafeteria was their primary home target. The cafeteria had long had a long outside window wall, ground level doors, and was just north of the senior parking lot. The library was Located above the cafeteria in the second story of the window wall, each car contained bomb time to detonate at 12 p.m. As Harris pulled into the parking lot, he encountered classmate Brooks Brown, with whom he had recently passed up a long-standing series of disputes. According to Brown, who was smoking a cigarette, he was surprised to see Harris, who he earlier noted had been absent from his class test. Brown confronted Harris about missing the test. Harris seemed unconcerned. Tell it doesn't matter anymore. Harris went on, Brooks, I like you. Now get out of here. Go home. Brown, feeling uneasy, was and already prepared to skip his next bus, walked away down South Pierce Street. Meanwhile, Harris and Clifford armed themselves using straps and webbing to conceal weapons beneath the black, beneath black trench coats, tickling dusters. They lugged backpacks and duffel bags that were filled with pipe bombs and ammunition. Harris also had his shotgun in one of the bags beneath the trench coat. Harris wore a homemade bandolier and a white t-shirt that read National Selection and Black Letters. Cleveland wore a black t-shirt that read Wrath and red, red, red Letters. 
the cafeteria bombs failed to detonate. Had these bombs exploded with full power, they would, could have killed or severely wounded all of the 48 students in the 488 students in the cafeteria. Possibly made the ceiling collapse by destroying the pillars holding it up, dropping the library into the cafeteria. At 11:19 a.m., shooting begins. At 11:19 a.m., 17-year-old Rachel Scott, Scott and her friend Richard. Castaldo were having lunch and sitting on the grass next to the west end of the school. We went through a pipe run towards the parking lot. The bomb only partially detonated, causing it to give off smoke. Castaldo thought it was no more than a sick crude senior prank. Likewise, several students during the incident thought they that they were watching a prank. A witness reported hearing go go before Cooper and Harris pulled their guns from the beneath their trench coats and began shooting. Scott was killed instantly when she was hit four times with rounds fired from Harris's carburetor. One shot was to the left temple. Costaldo was shot eight times chest, arm, and abdomen. He fell unconscious to the ground and was left paralyzed below the chest. Harris aimed his carbine down to down the west staircase in the direction of three students, Daniel Rorbo, Sean Graves and Lance Kirkland. The students figured they were part, they were paintball guns and were about to walk up the staircase directly below the shooters. Harris fired, killing Robor while injuring Graves and Kirkland. Dave Sanders, a teacher and coach at the school, was in the cafeteria when he heard the gunfire began warning students. The shooters turned and began firing west in the direction of five students sitting on the across the hillside adjacent to the steps and opposite the west entrance of the school. Michael Johnson was hit in the face, leg, and arm, but ran and escaped. Mark Taylor was shot in the chest, arms, and leg, and fell to the ground where he faked death. The other three escaped uninjured. Cleaver walked down the steps toward the cafeteria. He came up to Lance Kirkland, who was already wounded and lying on the ground. Quickly calling for help, Cleaver said, Sure, I'll help. I'll help you. Then shot Kirkland in the face with his shotgun, quickly wounding him. Graves paralyzed beneath the right waist and his head crawled into the doorway of the cafeteria west entrance and collapsed. He rubbed blood on his face and played dead. After shooting Kirkland, Cleaver walked towards the cafeteria door. He then stepped over the injured Graves to enter the cafeteria. Graves remembers Cleaver saying, Sorry, dude. Cleveland only briefly entered the cafeteria and did not shoot at the several people still inside. The officials took it that Cleveland went to check on the program bombs. Harris was still on top of the stairs, stairs shooting and severely wounded and partially paralyzed 17-year-old Anne-Marie Halter as she tried to see, tried to flee. Cleveland came out of the cafeteria and went back upstairs to join Harris. They shot at students standing close to a soccer field but did not hit anyone. They walked toward the west entrance, throwing pipe bombs in several directions, including onto the roof. Only a few of these bombs detonated. Witness here heard one of them heard one of them say, "This is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome." Meanwhile, our teacher Patty Nielsen was inside the school. She had noticed the commotion and walked toward the west entrance with student Brian Anderson Nielsen had intended to walk outside to tell two students to knock it off, thinking they were either filming a video or pulling a student prank. As Stu Anderson opened the first set of double doors, the gunman shot out the windows, entering him 
with flying glass. Nielsen was hit in the shoulder with shrapnel. Anderson and Nielsen ran back down the hall into the library, and Nielsen alerted the students inside 2D to the danger, telling them to get under desk, keep silent. She dialed 911 and hit under the library's administration counter. Anderson fell to the floor, bleeding from his injuries, then hid inside the magazine room adjacent to the library. 11.22 a.m. Police response. At 11.22 a.m., a custodian called Deputy Neil Gardner, the assigned resource officer, to call one on the school radio requesting assistance in the school senior parking lot. The only paved route took him around the school to the east and southern Pierce Street, where at 11.23 a.m. he heard on his police radio that a female was down and assumed she had been struck by a car while exiting a patrol call in the senior lot. At 11.24, he heard another call for the on the school radio, Neil, there's a shooter in the school. Harris as the west entered the melee turn and fired 10 shots with carbine at Gardner, who was 60 yards, 55 millimeters away. As Harris reloaded his carbine, Gardner leaned over the top of his car and fired four rounds at Harris from his service. Pistol Harris ducked back behind the building and Gardner momentarily believed that he had hit him. Harris then re-emerged and fired at least four more rounds at Gardner which missed and struck two parked cars. Before retreating into the building, no one was hit during the exchange of gunfire. Gardner reported on his radio shots in the building. I need someone in the south lot with me. By this point, Harris had shot 47 times and Cleveland just five. The shooters entered the school through the west entrance, moving along the main north hallway, throwing pipe bombs and shooting at anyone they encountered. Clipboard shot Stephanie Munson in the angle, but she was able to walk out of the school. The pair then shot out the windows by the entrance of the school after proceeding through the hall several times and shooting toward and missing any students they saw. They went toward the west entrance and turned into the library hallway. Deputy Paul Smoker, a motorcycle patrolman with the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, was riding a traffic north of the school when the female down call came in at 11.23 a.m. Taking the shortest route, he drove his motorcycle over grass between the athletic fields and headed toward the west entrance. We saw Deputy Scott Daborski following him in a patrol car. He abandoned his motorcycle to, for the safety of the car. Two deputies had begun to rescue two wounded students near the ball fields and when another gunfire broke out at 11.26 as Harris returned to the double doors and began shooting at Deputy Gardner who returned fired. From the hilltop, Deputy Smoker fired three rounds from his pistol at Harris who again retreated into the building as before no one was hit. Inside the school cafeteria, Dave, teacher Dave Sanders and two historians, two custodians, John Curtis and Jay Gallantine, Initially told students to get under the tables and successfully evacuated students up the staircase leading to the second floor of the school. The stairs were located around the corner from the library hallway in the main south hallway. Sanders then tried to secure as much of the school as he could. Now Harris and Cleaver were inside the main hallway. Sanders and another student were down at the end of the hallway where he gestured for students in the library to stay. <coughs> they encountered Harris and Cleaver who were approaching from the corner of the north hallway. Sanders and the student 
turned and ran in the opposite direction. Harris and Cleveland shot at them both, with Harris hitting, hitting Sanders twice in the back and neck but missing the student. The latter ran into the science classroom and warned everyone to hide. Cleveland walked over towards Sanders, who had collapsed and tossed the pipe bomb into the cafeteria, then returned to Harris up the hallway, library hallway. Sanders struggled toward the science area and the teacher took him into a classroom where 30 students were located. Where due to his knowledge of first aid, student Aaron Hansey was brought to the classroom from another by teachers despite the unfolding commotion with the assistance of a fellow student named Kevin Starkey and teacher Teresa Miller Hansey administered first aid to Sanders for three hours attempting to stem the blood loss using shirts from students in the classroom showing and pictures from his wallet to keep him talking. Using a phone in the room, Miller and services maintained contact with police outside the school. As the shooting unfolded, pipe bombs were tossed into in the hallways and down into the cafeteria. Patty Nelson in the library called 911, telling a story and urged students in the hallway to take care of any deaths. According to transcripts, her call was received by, by 911 operator at 11.25. 18 a.m. 11.29 to 11.30 a.m. Library, library Massacre. At 11.29 a.m., Harris and Cleveland entered the library. 52 students and two teachers and two librarians were inside. Harris yelled, get up. Nobody responded. Harris fired a shotgun twice at a desk student. Evan Todd had been standing near a pillar when the shoot, shooter shooters entered the library and had just taken cover behind a Copier. Todd was hit by wood splinters in the eye and lower back but was not seriously injured. He then hid behind the administrative counter once Harris and Cleveland moved. The shooters walked into the library towards the two rows of computers. Sitting at the north row was disabled student Kyle Velasco, who Cleveland fired his shotgun twice at Finley, hitting him in the head and back. The shooters put down their ammunition filled duffel bags at the south or lower row of computers and reloaded the weapons. They walked between the computer rows toward the window facing the outside staircase. They especially they especially could began shooting and speaking to all the students in the library. Throughout the massacre in the library, they ordered everybody to get up, saying that the library was going to explode. They stated how long they had been waiting for this and seemed to be enjoying themselves, shouting things like Yahoo after shooting. Repeatedly ordering the jocks to stand up, one of the two said, Anybody with a white hat or sports emblem on it, on it is dead and wearing a white bunch at Columbine was a tradition among sports team members. Nobody stood up and several students tried to hide their white hats. Noticing that the place for evacuated students outside the school windows Outside school windows were shot out in the direction of the police. Officers returned fire and the gunmen retreated from the windows. No one was injured. Clibo then removed his trench coat. He shouted for the jocks to stand up, but then no one did. He said, Fine, I'll just start shooting and fired his shotgun at the nearby table, injuring three students Patrick Ireland, Daniel Stapleton, and Mark and Mackay Hawk. Harris walked toward the lower row of computer desk with a shotgun, firing a single shot under the first desk from a short distance away while down on one knee. He hit 14-year-old Stephen Kernow with a mortal wound to the neck. He then walked closer, got on one knee, and shot on the adjacent computer desk, injuring 17-year-old Casey Bruce 
Rube's acre at a shot which passed completely through her right shoulder, also grazing her neck and severing a major artery when she started gasping the pain. Harris tersely stated, quit your, quit your bitching. Harris walked over to the table south of the lower computer, slapped the surface twice, and now signed peekaboo to 17-year-old Kathy Bernal, Bernal before shooting her once in the head, killing her. Harris had been holding the shotgun with one hand at this point, and the weapon hit his face and recoil, injuring his nose. He told Clifford he had done so, and Clifford responded, Why'd you do that? At the finish shooting Bernal, Harris turned toward the next table where Marie Pasquale sat next to the table rather than under it. Harris's nose was bleeding, but witnesses later reported that he had blood around his mouth. Harris asked Pasquale if, he wanted to die, if she wanted to die, and she responded, with a plea for her life, Harris laughed and responded, Everyone's gonna die, but Cleveland said, Shooter, Harris responded, No, we're gonna blow up the school anyway. Cleveland knows Arvin trying to provide aid to Hall, who had suffered a wound to his knee. As Arvin tried to help Hall, his head rose above the table. Cleveland shot him a second time, hitting him twice in the head and once in the foot. Ireland was knocked unconscious but survived. Cleveland then walked toward another table where discovered 18 year old Isaiah Schulz, 16 year old Matthew Ketster, and 16 year old Craig Scott, Rachel's younger brother, hiding underneath. Cleveland called out to Harris he found a, that he found a nigger and tried to pull Schulz out from under the, the table. Harris left Pasquale and joined him. According to witnesses, they taunted Schulz for a few seconds, making derogatory racial statements. The gunman both fired under the table. Harris shot Schulz once in the head, just killing him. And Cleveland shot and killed Ketchner, though Schulz was not shot in the head. Cleveland said, I didn't know black birds could fly that far. Meanwhile, Scott was unique. Scott was uninjured, fighting in the blood of his friends, feigning death. Harris him yelled, who's ready to, who's ready to die next? He turned and threw a ticket at the cricket at the table where Hall, Stapleton, and Hyrule were located. It landed on Stapleton's thigh. Hall quickly nosed it and tossed it behind them and exploded in midair. Harris walked toward the bookcase between the west and center section of tables in the library. He jumped on one and, it sh and shook it, apparently attempted to topple it, then shot at the books which had fallen. Cleveland walked to the east area of the library. Hall Harris walked from the bookcase past the central area to meet Cleveland. The latter shot at the display case next to the door, then returned and shot toward the closest table, hitting an injuring 17-year-old Mark Kinston in the head and shoulder. He then turned toward the table to his left and fired, injuring 18-year-old Lisa Krutz, Lauren Townsend, and Valene Schnur. With the same shotgun blast, Cleveland then moved toward the same table and fired several shots with a Tech-9 killing Townsend. At this point, the seriously injured Belaine Chenier began screaming, Oh my God, oh my God, in response, Cleveland asked Chenier if she believed in the existence of God, and when she replied she did, Cleveland asked why, and commented, God is gay. Cleveland reloaded those, but walked away from the table. Harris approached another table where two girls were hiding. He bent down to look at them and dismissed them as pathetic. Harrison moved to the another table where he fired twice, injuring 16-year-olds Nicole Nolan and John Tomlin. Tomlin moved out from under the table. Cleveland shot him repeatedly, killing him. Harrison walked back over to the other side of the table where Townsend lay dead. 
Behind the table, a six-year-old girl named Kelly Fleming had, like Brie Pasquale, sat next to the table rather than beneath it due to a lack of hair shot Fleming with his hand shotgun hitting her in the back and killing her. He shot at the table behind Fleming, hitting Townsend, who was already dead, Cruz again, and wounding 18-year-old Jenna Park. The shooters moved to the center of the library where they reloaded their weapons at the table. Harrison pointed his carbine under a table, but the student he was aiming at moved out of the way. Harris turned his gun back on the student and told him to identify himself. It was John Savage, an acquaintance of Klebold's. He asked Klebold what they were doing, which, to which he shrugged and answered, killing people. Savage asked if they were going to kill him, possibly because of the firearms. Klebold said, what? Savage asked again whether they were going to kill him. Klebold said no and told him to run. Savage fled, escaping through the library's main entrance. After Savage left, Harris turned and fired his carbine at the table directly north of where he had been hitting the ear and hand of 15-year-old Daniel Mosser. Mosser reacted either shoving a chair at Harris or grabbing at his leg. Harris fired again and hit Mosser in the center of the face at close range, killing him. Pulsiers moved south and ran fired roundly under another table, critically injuring two 17-year-olds, Jennifer Doyle and Austin Eubanks, and failing with a 17-year-old Corey DePruder at 11.35. They were heard. There were no further victims. They had killed ten, <coughs> ten people in the library and wounded twelve. At this point, Clifford was quoted as saying, "They might, they might start knifing people, though they never did." They headed towards the library's main counter. Harris threw a Molotov cocktail towards the southwestern end of the library, but it failed to explode. They converted, they converged close to where Todd had moved after having been wounded. Cleveland pulled the chair out from the desk. Then he pointed a TEC-9 at Todd, <coughs> who was wearing a white hat. Cleveland asked if he was a jock, and when Todd said no, Cleveland responded, well, that's good, we don't like jocks. Cleveland then demanded to see his face. Todd partly lifted his hat to so his face remained obscured. When Cleveland asked Todd to give him one reason why he should not kill him, Todd said, I don't want to, I don't want trouble. Cleveland responded back, I'm in trouble, you don't even know what trouble is. Todd tried to correct himself, that's not what I meant. I mean, I don't have a problem with you guys, I never will, and I never did. Cleveland then told Harris he was going to let Todd live, but that, but that Harris could kill him if he wanted. Harris seemed to pay little attention and said, Let's go to the commons. Cleveland fired a single shot into the open library staff break room, hitting a small television while Harris was walking away. Cleveland said one more thing, then picked up the chair beside the library counter under which Patty Nielsen was hiding and slammed the chair down on top of the computer terminal and library counter. Cleveland joined Harris at the library entrance. The two walked out of the library and then... <coughs> The two walked out of the library at 11 36, cautiously fearing the shooters return. 10 injured and 29 uninjured. Survivors began to evacuate the library through the north emergency exit door, which led to the sidewalk adjacent to the west entrance. Casey Ruggs Egger was evacuated from the library by Craig Scott. He, had, he, had she not been evacuated at this point, Ruggs Egger would likely have bled to death from her injuries. Patrick Ireland, unconscious, and Lisa Cruz, unable to move, remained in the building. Patty Nielsen crawled into the exterior break room into which Cleveland had earlier fired shots and hid in a cupboard.
8 p.m. suicides, fatalities. British gun age 70 killed on grass outside West Indus by Harris. Dana Roebuck, age 15, killed at bottom stairs leading West Tensions by Harris. William David Sanders, age 47, shot hallway adjacent library by Harris, died of blood loss in a science classroom. Kyle Blossett, age 16, killed while at while sat on a chair near the middle of the North Computer Table and Library by Cleburne. Steve Kernel, age 14, killed at the west end of the South Computer Table in the Library by Harris. Cassie Bernard, age 17, killed under the Library Table by, Library Table number 19 by Harris. Isaiah Scholes, age 19, killed under the Library Table number 16 by Harris. Matthew Ketchter, age 16, killed under the Library Table number 16 by Klebold. Laura Townsend, age 18, killed under library table number 2 by Klebold. John Tomlin, age 16, killed next to library table number 6 by Klebold after being wounded by Harris. Kelly Fleming, age 16, killed next to library table number 2 by Harris. Daniel Mosser, age 15, killed under library table number 9 by Harris. Corey DePooter, age 70, killed under library table number 14 by Harris and Klebold. After leaving the library, Harris and Klebold entered the science area where, where they caused a fire in an empty storage closet. It was extinguished by a teacher who had hidden in an adjacent room. The gunmen then proceeded toward the south hallway where they shot into an empty science room. At 11.44 a.m., they were captured on school security cameras as they re-entered the cafeteria. The, record, the recording shows Harris kneeling on the landing and firing a single shot toward one of the Propane bombs left in the cafeteria in an unsuccessful attempt to detonate. As Klebold approached, the propane bomb examined it. Harris took a drink some, some, uh, from one of the cups left behind. Klebold left a Molotov cocktail and threw it at the propane, propane bomb. About a minute later, a gallon of fuel attached to the bomb ignited, causing a fire that was extinguished by the fire a few minutes later. They left the cafeteria at 11.46. After leaving the cafeteria, they returned to the main north and south hallways of the school and fired several shots into walls and ceilings at students and teachers hidden rooms. They walked through the south hallway into the main office before returning to the north hallway at 11.56. They returned to the cafeteria briefly and entered, cafeteria and briefly entered the school kitchen. They returned up the staircase and into the south hallway at 12 p.m. They re-entered the library, which was empty of survivors, except for the unconscious Patrick Ireland and the injured release of fruits. Once inside that 1202, police were shot at again through the library windows and returned fire. Nobody was injured in the exchange. By 1205, unthought from the school had ceased. By 1208, both gunmen had killed themselves. Harris down, sat down with his back to the bookshelf and fired a shotgun through a roof through the roof of his mouth. Cleveland went down on the on his knees and shot himself in his left temple with his TEC-9. An article by Rocky Mountain News stated that Patty Nielsen overheard him shout one, two, three in unison just before a loud boom. However, Nielsen claimed that she had never spoken with either of the article, artists of the article. In 2002, the National Enquirer published two post-mortem photos of Harrison Cleveland in the library. Cleveland's gun was underneath his body and someone seen in the 
photo, leading to seconds that Harris shot Quibble before killing himself. However, some of Quibble's blood was on Harris's leg. Also, just before shooting himself, Quibble lit a Molotov cocktail on a nearby table underneath which Patrick Ireland was laying, which caused the tabletop to momentarily catch fire. Underneath the scorched field of military was a piece of Harris' brain matter, suggesting Harris had shot himself by this point. The server recalls the events of the day. Crisis ends. SWAT response. By 12 p.m., SWAT teams requested were stationed outside the school, and an ambulance started taking the wounded to local hospitals. A call for additional ammunition for police officers in case a shootout came at 12:20. Authorities reported pipe bombs by one and two SWAT teams entered the school at 1:09, moving from classroom to classroom to discover hidden students and faculty. They at the end of the school opposite the library, hampered by old lamps and unaware of a new. Wing had been recently had recently been added. They were also hampered by the south, hampered by the sound of fire alarms. Leewood Leewood Elementary. Meanwhile, families of students and staff were asked to gather at nearby Leewood Elementary School to await information. All students, teachers, and school employees were taken away, questioned, and offered medical care in small holding areas before being bused to meet with their family members at Leewood Elementary. Some of the victims' families were told to wait one final wait on final school bus that never came. The boy in the window. Patrick Allen had regained and lost consciousness several times after being shot by Cleveland paralyzed on his right side. He crawled to the library window where on live television at 2.38 p.m. he stretched out the window intending to fall into the arms of two SWAT team members standing on the roof of an emergency vehicle but instead followed directly onto the vehicle's roof in a pool of blood. He became known as the boy in the window. The team members were later criticized for allowing Ireland to drop more than seven feet to the ground while doing nothing to try to ensure he could be lowered to the ground safely or break his fall. One bleeding to death. At 2.15 p.m. students were placed, students placed a sign into in the window, one bleeding to death in order to alert police and medical personnel at the center's location in the science room. Police initially feared it was a ruse by the shooters. A sh- shirt was also tied to the door at 2.30. This was spotted by spotted and by 2.40 SWAT officers evacuated the room of students and called for a paramedic. Hansen and Starkey were elected to leave Sanders behind. By 3 o'clock, the SWAT officers moved Sanders to a storage room which was more easily accessible as they did so. A paramedic arrived and Sanders had no pulse. He had died of his injuries in, his, in the storage room before he could receive medical care. He was the only teacher to die in the shooting. Suicide mission, estimate 25 dead. Lisa Cruz shot in the shoulder, arm, hand, arms, hand, and thigh, remained lying in the library. She had tried to move but became Lightheaded Cruz tra- kept track of the time by the sound of the shoot school bells until police arrived. Cruz was finally evacuated at 3.22 p.m. along with Patty Nielsen, Brian Anderson, and the three library staff who had hidden in the room adjacent to the library. Officials found the bodies in the library by 3.30. By 4 o'clock, Sheriff Stone made an initial estimate of 25 dead students and teachers, 50 wounded, and referred to the massacre. As a suicide mission, President Bill Clinton issued a statement. Bomb squad response. Stone said that police officers were searching the bodies to the gunmen. They feared 
they had used pipe, pipe bombs to booby trap corpses, including their own, at 4.30 p.m. The school was declared safe. At 5.30, additional officers were called in as more explosives were found in the parking lot and on the roof. By 6.15, officials had found a pipe bomb and the people called in the parking lot set to detonate the gas tank. Stone then marked the entire school as a crime scene. At 10.40 p.m., a member of the bomb squad who was attempting to dispose of an undetonated pipe bomb accidentally lit a striking match attached to the bomb by brushing it against the wall of the or ordnance disposal trailer. The bomb detonated inside the trailer, but no one was injured. The bomb squad disrupted the car bomb. Klebold's car was repaired and in 2006 put up for auction. Immediate aftermath. One in the morning of April 21st, bomb squads combined combed the high school by 8.30 a.m. The official death toll was 15. The 15 were released. The earlier estimate was 10 over the true death toll count, but close to the count, total count of wounded students. The total count of deaths was 12 students, 14 including the shooters, and one teacher. 20 students and one teacher were injured as a result of the shootings. Three more victims were injured directly as Indirectly, as they tried to escape the school, it was then the worst school shooting in U.S. history. At 10 a.m., the bomb squad declared the building safe for officials to enter. By 11.30 a.m., a spokesman of the sheriff declared the investigation underway. Thirteen of the bodies were still inside the high school as investigators photographed the building. At 2.30 p.m., a press conference was held by Jeff Cole, District Attorney David, David Thomas and Sheriff John Stone at which they said they that they suspected others had helped plan the shooting. Formal identification of the dead had not taken yet had not yet taken place, but members of the children thought to have been killed had been identified. Throughout the late afternoon and early evening the bodies were gradually removed from the school and taken in taken to the Jeffville Coroner's office to be identified and autopsied. By five PM the names of many of the dead were known and officials in an official statement was released naming the 15 confirmed deaths and 27 injuries related to the massacre. On April 22nd, the cafeteria bombs were discovered. In the days following the shooters, Rachel Scott's car and John Thomas' truck became memorial. An impromptu memorial were held in Cleveland Park on April 30th. Carpenter Greg Zanis erected 15 six foot tall wooden tall crosses to honor those who had died at the school. Daniel Robert's father cut down the two meant for the gunmen. They were awful. There were also 15 trees planted and he cut down two of those as well. Thank you for listening to this episode. Have a good week and stay safe.